Amen. All right. I want you to keep your finger there at Acts chapter 2, and then uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. So we're coming back to Acts 2, but I want us to begin in Isaiah chapter 6. And I would like to begin this morning by asking you a question. If I asked you to share your conversion story with me, what would you say? Now, even though my NIV 84 Bible reads Isaiah's commission above this text, I see in this event more than a commission. I see a conversion. In these verses, a conversion takes place in the heart of Isaiah. Let's read verses 1 through 8 together. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's look just for a moment this morning at what brings Isaiah to conversion. He begins by placing his conversion in its proper historical context. He says in verse 1 that it happens in the year that King Isaiah died. Now, that's an important piece of information because King Isaiah was one of the top five kings of all time. He was one of the really, really good ones. He was anointed at age 16. He reigned for 52 years, and for the most part, he was distinguished by both his godliness and his innovations. The Bible says that during his reign, he brought the land of Judah back to its former prominence that it had during the days of David and Solomon. And even though there were rumblings, even though there were threats of a possible invasion by the Assyrian emperor, as long as King Isaiah was on the throne, there was no reason for concern. Isaiah says that his conversion happened in the year that King Isaiah died. King Isaiah is the only king that Isaiah had ever known. Isaiah had been the king longer than Isaiah had been alive. 
And so for the young Isaiah, the death of this beloved king led to a crisis of faith. You see, one of the primary responsibilities of the king was to be the people's deliverer. If there was ever a threat from an opposing nation, it was the king who was to deliver the people from their enemies. Yet King Isaiah is no longer around to be the deliverer of the people. He had been such a good one, and he's no longer around. So in a very real sense, the entire book of Isaiah can be understood as a prophecy about now that Isaiah is dead, who will deliver the people of Israel? And what Isaiah discovers is that the Lord is their deliverer. In fact, literally, the prophet's name, Isaiah, means the Lord is my deliverer. And so in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah had a vision that changed his life. What did he see? He says that he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you see what he sees? It's a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Isaiah saw the Lord and the train, he tells us, which can also be translated as him or stitch. The, the, the train, the him, the stitch of his robe filled the temple. And this begs the question, if just the hem of his garment fills the entire temple, then how big is his throne? If just the stitch of his garment fills the entire temple, then how big is the one sitting on the throne? In other words... As humans, we are unable to describe the greatness of God. Do you get that? We use words like glorious. We use words like majestic to describe God. And yet when we use words like that, we have only described one stitch of his robe. You know the saying, this is just the tip of the iceberg? Isaiah's vision of God is enormous, yet it's just the hem of his robe. I'm convinced that if we pull together all of our knowledge and all of our understanding of God in this room, it would be just enough to describe the stitch of his robe. Isaiah sees these six-winged creatures called seraphs that are calling out to one another. They're saying, holy, 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 holy. In the Bible, repetition is a literary device used to express emphasis. And scholars are quick to point out that there's no other threefold adjective that appears in all of the Bible. It's the only place in all the scripture where we have a three-fold adjective used. And it's used to describe 
the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. Oh, it's not just holy. It's holy, 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 each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. For you mathematical brains in the audience, one time it was explained to me like this. It isn't holy plus holy plus holy. It's holy times holy times holy. And here's the point. The Lord is so far beyond our description. The Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, is so beyond our finite thinking that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. It's the triple holy. It's holy cubed. Because we do not have a category to fit this description in. The Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, is not like us, only bigger and stronger and better. He's in a completely different category. The best word we have to describe him is the word holy, which is just a word that means that he's totally different from us. He's completely other. His ways are nothing like our ways. His thoughts are nothing like our thoughts. And Isaiah sees this vision, and it changes him. He famously declared, woe is me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And here's what I want you to see. Conversion takes place in Isaiah's heart when he sees the exalted Lord seated on his throne. There's breakthrough. Conversion happens. So allow me to describe his, this conversion to you in this way. By recognizing who the Lord is, the exalted King and Lord of all the universe, Isaiah realizes who he is, ruined and undone. Listen, Isaiah just sees a stitch of the Lord's robe, and it causes him to come apart at the seams. And because he sees the Lord more clearly, he's able to see himself more clearly. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Man, I... I hope that uh, you enjoyed Rand Daddy last week as much as I did. Um, and I, you know, my big takeaway from last week, I loved, I, I loved his illustration 
that he used with us last week of the overlays. Number one, it kind of took me back to science class back in junior high. Um, if you weren't here last week, he, he talked about these overlays, you know, the, it's transparencies like the ones that we, you might use in a human anatomy class. And on, on the initial page, you only have the skeleton of the human body. But then you start to overlay all the transparencies on top of the skeleton. And you, it's the organs and the blood vessels and the muscles and the skin. And after you place all of the transparencies, one on top of the other, you now have this clear and full picture of the human body. And that's such a great illustration of what Peter is doing in his speech at Pentecost. You see, there's this, this sound like a blowing wind that came from heaven. And it filled the house, and they, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on all of them. And they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages. Jews from every nation under heaven heard the sound, and they came together, and they were amazed and bewildered and perplexed. And they asked, what does this mean? And in response to that question, Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd with this speech that we've looked at over the past three weeks where he overlays not transparencies, but prophecies, one on top of the next. The first one was from Joel in Joel chapter 2. It's about the last days and the pouring out of the Spirit and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And then the second one was from David in Psalm 16 about the resurrection of the Lord. The one who they had put to death by nailing him to a cross has been raised from the dead. And the third one was also from David from Psalm 101 about the ascension of the Lord to the right hand of God, where he has now received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. And so the initial picture, the skeleton, if you will, was was just this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But now with the overlays, with the addition of the prophecies, Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, there's this clear picture of who he really is. Peter says, let all Israel be assured of this. This picture is now full and crystal clear. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Literally, Peter says there, let all Israel know with certainty. If you go back to to Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, kind of the beginning to this two-volume work of Luke's, Luke writes in verse 4 that the very reason he's made all of this effort to track down all of these eyewitnesses and to carefully investigate everything from the beginning is so that we may have certainty. And so 
Peter's conclusion of this Pentecost speech that would ignite a movement that would change the world is let all Israel know with certainty the one whom you crucified just seven weeks ago because you thought he was a lawbreaker and a heretic. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit that you see and hear is proof that Jesus is seated on the throne high and exalted. This is so beautiful, church. You see, what Peter does with this speech at Pentecost is the same thing that God did for Isaiah. He gives the people a vision of the exalted Lord seated on his throne. Let all of Israel know with certainty the pouring out of the Spirit that you now see and hear has been poured out by none other than Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord seated on his throne. Wow. Do you know what happens next? Conversion. Just like in Isaiah 6, there's breakthrough. By recognizing who the Lord is, the people realize who they are. Because they see the Lord more clearly, they're now able to see themselves more clearly. Luke writes in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, this, this verb and expression appear only here in all the New Testament. The only, only place. They were cut to the heart. Just in some research that I've done recently, I discovered this about uh, this verb, and I found it very interesting. Homer, not Simpson, but the ancient Greek author that Brent, Brent mentioned in his communion talk, the one who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he used this verb to refer to horses stomping the earth with their hooves. Same verb that's translated as cut 
Homer used that same verb to refer to horses stomping the earth with their hooves. Oh, man. You see, this is not just a small paper cut that feels better the next day. This vision of Jesus, whom they crucified as the exalted Lord now seated on his throne, pouring out the Holy Spirit to all who call on him to be saved, did not just prick their hearts. It trampled their hearts. Like horses stomping on their hearts with their hooves. They were wrecked. They were humbled. In the words of Isaiah, they were ruined and undone. You have to use your imagination here a little bit. But after Peter finishes his speech, I like to think that everyone's quiet for some time. And then a lone voice breaks the silence, speaks up on behalf of the crowd. Says, brothers, tell us what to do. Peter replies, repent, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God call. Now allow me to ask you some questions this morning because I want to connect some important dots here. What initially caused this crowd to gather? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They heard the sound, came together amazed, and they asked, what does this mean? How did Peter begin his sermon? Peter shared with them from the prophecy from Joel about how in the last days God will pour out his spirit on all people and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How did Peter end his sermon? Peter ended his sermon by sharing with them from Psalm 110 about how Jesus is the exalted Lord at the right hand of the Father who has received the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. And here's why it's important to connect those dots. Because when Peter replies to them, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is not an afterthought. 
It's not an add-on. It's not a, oh yeah, and you'll also get this. It's not a secondary gift. It's not a forgiveness is 1A and Holy Spirit's 1B. It's not a door prize. It is the climax of the Pentecost event. Everything has been leading up to Peter sharing this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you. What you see and hear. You will receive. You see, the Pentecost gift is not only for the apostles or just for the 120 who'd waited these 10 days since the ascension of Jesus. The Pentecost gift was for every one of them who repent and are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And it does not end there. The Pentecost gift is the gift that keeps on giving. The gift is not only for those present on that occasion. It's not only for their contemporaries, but to their descendants as well. Not only to the people of Jerusalem, but to those of distant lands. Not only to the Jews, but we'll learn here in Acts that it's to the Gentiles also. To all who are far off, and that includes even you and me. In fact, it includes everyone who repents and is baptized into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. As we conclude, here's what, here's what I want you to see about this conversion at Pentecost this morning. Too often, I have used this sermon to focus only on what we must do to be saved. When it seems to me that Peter's primary focus is on the identity of Jesus Christ. Why is that his focus? It's his focus, I believe, because Peter knows how hard our hearts are. And there's only one way to break through our hard hearts. It's only the Lord's who that can change our do. It's only the Lord's who 
that can change our dew. The initial picture was of this man, Jesus of Nazareth of all places. Nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth, but with the overlays, with the addition of the prophecies, Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, there's now this full and clear picture of who Jesus really is. And Peter says, let all Israel be certain of this. This picture is now crystal clear. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And when they recognize who he is, they realize who they are. And when they realize who they are, they repent and are baptized. Listen, repentance and baptism go hand in hand. One is an inward response. The other is an outward response. And when they repent, they receive the promised Holy Spirit. If I ask someone in the Pentecost crowd to share their conversion story with us this morning, Here's how they would summarize it. Recognize, realize, repent, receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for using Luke as a historian to carefully investigate, to track down eyewitnesses, to bring us this testimony. This testimony of Pentecost. We are encouraged. We are convicted. Father, I I pray, I pray, my, my one prayer, that by spending the last month in this one sermon, that we will recognize you more clearly. Because when we see who you really are, everything changes. So, Father, as a church, may we exalt and magnify and worship the name of Jesus Christ so that the whole world will recognize him and realize who they are without him.
and turn to him. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if there's anyone who is here that would like to respond to the message, what? there's not a better day. Come and to, what's, I, you know, that Joel prophecy there at the beginning, it says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe that to be true. And I, 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 I just want to encourage you to call on the name of the Lord today. If, if, you, if you don't know, if I were to ask you what's your conversion story and you say, I don't, I don't have one, I don't, I don't know him, let me encourage you to call on him today. Call on the Lord who's seated on the throne, high and exalted, ready to forgive, ready to pour out his Holy Spirit. Call on his name. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Allow your heart to be wrecked by who the Lord is and run to him. Run to him. Baptized into his name. Not into the name of anybody else, but into the name of Jesus Christ. Bend your knee to him. Submit yourself to him. Love to be a part of that with you today. Let's stand together and sing.